Bibles. Good morning. It's so good to join and share God's Word this morning. Thank you for joining with us on campus and joining with us online as well. Uh, before we begin our time in God's Word this morning, let us uh, pray. Lord, we just ask that during this time we would just have just hearts and minds that are focused on you, Lord, trusting in your goodness towards us, Lord, that you would, through your spirit and through your word, reveal the truths that we so desperately need, truths that uh, oftentimes uh, we already know, we just need to rediscover the beauty of those truths, and Lord, just give us uh, a desire and the power through your spirit to live within those truths. Lord, thank you for the story, the mighty story of Christmas, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I'd encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 895, 895. We're going to start a new uh, teaching series, sermon series over the next uh, few weeks, uh, looking at the story of Christmas. Uh, This will be part one. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 2 again. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so just so you know. Uh, We're going to read the whole chapter and kind of look through different aspects of that chapter. And so make sure your seats are buckled and you're ready because it's going to be important. Try not to write down everything because you won't do it, um, but just allow the spirit to just uh, grip your heart, right? Grip your heart and your mind. Uh, Matthew 2 is important uh, for many reasons. Uh, Matthew uh, is the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience And the main objective for that writing is to uh, prove that Jesus Christ is the promised uh, Messiah. He is the Christ. And when we look at Matthew chapter 2, the events that we're going to look at uh, happen after Jesus' birth. And it could, it could be somewhere between at least a month after he was born up to two years. And we'll see uh, reasons for that in our passage. So this isn't the nativity scene, right? This is after all that. So that's important uh, to keep in mind. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, so just bear with me as I read it. But please just engage your heart and your mind and, and the word of the Lord. The scripture reference will be uh, on the screens behind me. But feel free to follow along in your Bible as well. Uh, So beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old and or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So from this passage, we're going to look at three important observations Three important observations. The first observation that we see is the clash of kings. The clash of kings. There's something about the story of Christmas that reminds us that someone is always causing trouble, right? You think about the movies that we watch. You have Scrooge, right? You have The Grinch. Uh, if you watch Home Alone, you have Marvin Harry, right? And depending on how you lay out your cards, Cousin Eddie in Christmas Vacation may be that one that's causing trouble, it doesn't take long in the story of Christmas to see the chaos that Jesus' birth brings. Look at how Matthew communicates this chaos beginning in verse 1 and 2. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, in other words, take notice, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So before we talk about Herod, let's talk about the wise men because there's so much about the wise men that we just don't know. We know that they are called magi as well. Uh, we don't know uh, where they came from exactly. Uh, oftentimes we refer to them as the three kings, but pretty confident they weren't kings. They were more than likely astrologists uh, that, that work on behalf of the king. We don't even know if there are three, right? There's no scripture reference that says there were three. Uh, we typically get to that because of the gifts that were brought, but we don't know for sure. Uh, again, we don't know exactly where they came from. We know from the east, but it's possible that they came from Persia or Babylon or Arabia. And all three of those could be logical because the word magi originated in Persia. Uh, the gifts that would have been given to Jesus uh, were very common in Arabia. But it's also true that it's possible that they came from Babylon because if you think about it, they, these, these wise men had to have some type of influence of Old Testament scripture to know that when that star appeared, the Messiah was here. And if you think about the captivity of God's people when they went into Babylon after those 70 years, they were released from captivity. And what happened? Many of the Jews departed from Babylon, went back to Jerusalem, but guess what? Some stayed in Babylon. So it's possible that that's where they heard the scripture. So they could have traveled 500 miles, 1,000 miles, we don't know. But what we do know is that they're coming. Why? Because they want to worship the one who was born the king of the Jews. And they followed the star to Jerusalem to find him, right? 
Matthew continues in verse 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so uh, that word troubled means to be greatly disturbed, to be agitated, in some context to be paranoid. Now the question is, why is Herod so troubled? The reason why is important because Herod is not... Herod is the appointed king of the Jews. He's not the one born king of the Jews. There is a difference, and Herod knows this. And Herod was deeply invested in protecting his kingship. You can only have one king, and according to him, he is it, and everybody should know it, right? The fact that all of Jerusalem was troubled can imply that they're not sure how Herod's going to respond. Is he going to flip off the handle, right? In other words, if Herod ain't happy, nobody's happy, right? Herod calls Jesus the Christ, and that is very, very significant. And he reaches out to the people who should know. He reaches out to the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the scripture says this, They, the religious leaders, told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the religious leaders quote from two places, Micah chapter 5, which would have been 700 years before the birth of Jesus, 1 Samuel chapter 16, which would have been 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. Jesus will come from the small town of Bethlehem, the same hometown of King David, and Jesus will be the shepherd king, the one one who was promised long ago. This reminds us that though creation gives us general revelation that there is a God, we need special revelation that comes from the scripture according to the things that Jesus has accomplished. And that is important. So where do they go? They go to the scripture. Verses 7 and 8, the scripture says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from what time the star had appeared. He wanted to know exactly when it occurred. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod calls this secret meeting, right? To find out exactly when the star first appeared, when they first made their journey from the east. He wants to find out when it occurred. He says, Go diligently, go quickly, turn up every rock, knock on every door, call everybody that you know, because I need to find this one named Jesus, the Messiah, the one born king of the Jews, because I want to worship him too. But we know that that's not Herod's desire at all. He had no desire to worship Jesus. Consider the clash of the two kings. You have King Herod, he's the earthly king of the Jews, he wasn't Jewish by birth. He comes from the line of Esau, happens to marry a woman who is Jewish. The woman that he marries has a brother who is a priest. And when you think about all of this, Rome appointed Herod to be the king over the Jews in 40 BC. Right? He had the title, but he wasn't the true king. Herod was in many ways a brilliant man, keep in mind. He was an expert horseman, a renowned builder. He built the aqueduct that is still used today. He built huge palaces. The fingerprints of Herod the Great are still evident today in the Middle East. Everything in Herod's life was to prove his greatness. So when the Magi come, more than likely through the road of Jericho, 
They would have seen the greatness of Herod's palace as they made their way down the path from Jericho to Jerusalem. They would have seen the golden temple that was the prized possession of the Jewish people. It was the very temple that Herod rebuilt that stood greater and more majestic than that of what Solomon built. The Magi would have never suspected that that one very question, where is he who is born the king of the Jews, would have been the very question that Herod dreaded the most. Not king appointed as king, but the one born as king. The Magi aren't bringing gifts to honor Herod. They're bringing gifts to honor the Christ. And any threat to the throne of Herod meant death. Herod killed his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, three of his sons. When Herod was on his deathbed, he ordered that Uh, A dozen noblemen would be captured and put in prison so that after he died, they would be put to death because he knew that he wasn't going to be mourned, but they would be. That's the kind of man that Herod was. Herod the Great, who lived in a palace, was appointed king by the people, but not for the people. He was evil, manipulative, deceitful, power-hungry, obsessed with himself, violent, and full of hatred. And then you have King Jesus. Remember, the clash of two kings. Jesus would have been born towards the end of Herod's rule, sometime between 5 and 6 BC, somewhere in there. Jesus is the king of the Jews, not by appointment, but by birth, right? He is the anointed one. He is the anointed king who will put an end to all kingship. Jesus is the servant king, the one who came to serve, not be served, right? He was born in a stable, not of royal means, but make no mistake about it. Jesus is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. He comes and gives us a new law. He comes and gives us a a new standard, a, a higher standard of righteousness, more than that what Moses gave on Mount Sinai. He is the king who can speak one word and heal the centurion servant. And he is Jesus who enters into Jerusalem right before he goes to the cross. And he sees the great magnitude of the crowd With great compassion, he hurts for them. Why? Because they are sheep without a shepherd. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the king who is Lord of the Sabbath. He is the king who is over the winds and the waves of the sea. He is the king who controls the heavens and the earth. He is the one who represents grace and truth in all of its fullness. He is the same king that the crowds in Jerusalem cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God save us. Only to, a week later, the same crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Remember the scene in Matthew 27. says the scripture says, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So rough, could be up to 600 men. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put on his head and put a reed or a scepter in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head then they had mocked him and they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him it's amazing that king Jesus comes to lay down his life for sinners like you and I and where king Herod dies guess what king Jesus lives forever Jesus is the king whom laid who was laid in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day, the earth that he created could no longer hold his body 
The very stone that he spoke into existence was rolled away. Jesus is the king who stood before his people after his resurrection. And what did he say? Behold, all authority is given to me. Therefore, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. And 40 days after that resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. He is sitting on his throne at the right hand of his father. And we know one day, one day, King Jesus is going to come again. That is my king. I pray that he is your king as well. And one day, one glorious day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you have the clash of kings, and now the second observation, the conflict of kingdoms, the conflict of kingdoms. We have this great conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and it's on full display in this chapter. We can't ignore it, right? We have to acknowledge the conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Matthew 2, verse 16, the scripture says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He was enraged. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So in Herod's rage, what does he do? He orders the killing of all the baby boys from two years old and under. Now, historians tell us that in this region of Bethlehem during this time, there would have been roughly 20 baby boys. Listen, that's 20 too many, right? That's 20 too many. So you have the slaughter of the innocent from this evil king. Herod is willing to kill all of them in order so he can get to one of them. The darkness of the kingdom and all of its evil is always against Jesus. And notice what Matthew says in verse 17 and 18. He says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, you got to go back a little bit. you got to go back. This is why the Old Testament is so important. So any, anybody that claims that the Old Testament is out of date, listen, you need the Old Testament. The Old Testament is functional to our understanding of the New Testament. And you got to go back to Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Jacob's wife, Rachel, had no children. And she's deeply grieved because he, she has no children. And she tells Jacob, give me children or I will die. That's how bad that hurt. And by the grace of God and in his timing, Rachel is given children. So Rachel is grieving for children she does not have. And when she dies, they bury her in a place called Ramah. The word Ramah means hill. So it's a hill that overlooks Bethlehem. So now we fast forward to the prophet Jeremiah. And that's exactly where Matthew is quoting from in verse 18. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. And we'll talk more about Jeremiah 31 in a couple weeks, but for, for this morning... It's important to understand that Jeremiah hears another cry, right? He's not hearing the cries of a woman who desires to have children, but a mother who is losing her children. This isn't a weeping of what could be. It's a weeping of hope lost. When Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in 586 BC, he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple, he killed many of the people, and he took many of the children captive. Among them would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In the staging area where all that occurred, where those young children were ripped from the arms of their parents, was none other than Ramah. And now Herod sends his army to Ramah to slaughter the young boys under the age of two. And just as the evil of Satan carried out by others was trying to wipe out God's people, 
back in Jeremiah's day, the evil of Satan is trying to wipe out God's one and only son and Herod's day. As soon as heaven touched down on earth in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, hell comes with its mouth wide open. Why? Because there's a great conflict between the kingdoms. When Jesus was born into the world, guess what? Satan is enraged. There is great conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And we, we understand this because when sin enters into the world in Genesis 3, what does the scripture say? This is the first encounter of the gospel. But within the encounter of the gospel, there is great adversity. Genesis 3.15, the scripture says, I, referring to God, will put enmity between you, talking about Satan and the woman, talking about Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring, referring to Jesus, he, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the promise of salvation, again, comes with great adversity. Satan, you will one day think that you have the upper hand. Satan, you will one day think that you have defeated the promised one. He will be crucified on the cross, but the cross is not defeat. The cross is a declaration of victory. Jesus is the promised one, and he comes to this earth. He enters into the darkness of the world, this kingdom, with the light of what? His very gospel. Remember what John 3, 16 and 17 say. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Satan and all the evil forces and everyone that rejects Jesus is against God's divine plan of salvation. Don't ever forget that while the angels are singing peace on earth, goodwill towards men, there is a King Herod. He's trying to wipe them out, right? It's the kingdom of darkness led by Satan himself. And he has an amazing agenda. And what is that agenda? John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But praise be to God, there's another agenda, a greater agenda. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, when you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you are rescued from the dominion of darkness and you are transferred into the marvelous kingdom of light. Praise God. But until Christ returns, we still live in the darkness of this world. We still do, right? A world that sees death, disease, heartbreak, tremendous suffering, suffering so great that we can't even comprehend. The great question of why. Here's what we're reminded of. There is no comfort found in the kings or the kingdoms of this world. Absolutely no comfort. The kingdom of this world is out of control. I mean, just look. It's chaos. But know this. In the midst of all that, God, God is always in control. God is so sovereign over all things. I mean, think about Matthew 2. God is sovereign over the stars. It was the star that led the wise men to Jerusalem to find Jesus. And after they got to Jerusalem, the star appears again, leading them to Bethlehem. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. The wise men went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. The wise men walk another five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see Jesus. And when the star got to where Jesus was, when it led them exactly where it was supposed to be, guess what? It says in the Greek that the star stood still. So God is sovereign over the stars. He's sovereign over dreams. I mean, look at verse 12. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed. The wise men departed to their own country by another way. Dreams show up four times in this passage in Matthew 2. And guess what? God is sovereign over all those dreams. He's warning his people. He's warning them and directing them. God is sovereign over angels. Verse 13 through 15. Scripture says, now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until what? Until I tell you, God is in control, right? For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. That would have been around 4 BC. So God tells Joseph to flee to Egypt. That word flee is an amazing word. It's a word that describes someone who is a fugitive. So Joseph and his family are what? They're fugitives. They're on a run. And why Egypt, right? Egypt is 75 miles south of Bethlehem. Now we have to understand during this time in Egypt, there would have been a, a growing and great community of Jewish people because they were escaping the tyranny of Herod. But there's more than that. Don't miss it. What does it say in the scripture? It says what? In verse 15, it says, It was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So in God's sovereignty, what is he doing? He's fulfilling all the prophecies. I mean, think about the beauty of this prophecy. In Exodus 4, God refers to his people as Israel, right? As his firstborn son. And Matthew here quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So what is the connection between Exodus 4, Hosea 1, and Matthew chapter 2. Again, in Exodus 4, when God releases his people out of captivity, after 400 years of captivity to the Egyptian, he, he sends them out, right? Going to the promised land. He says, Israel, my firstborn son. And then you get to Hosea 11, verse 1. And then you get Matthew chapter 2. What is this all talking about? How, what is the connection you see, when Matthew quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, he's declaring that Jesus is the true Israel. The context of Israel in the Old Testament is that God's people, they are to represent and reflect the glory of the Lord. They are to be the light to all the nations, right? But they fail time and time again. You read the book of Hosea, and you see over and over and over again, God is the faithful one. God's people are always unfaithful. That's what the scripture is teaching us. They fail time and time again. Where God is always faithful, his people, Israel, are always unfaithful. Until Jesus, the true Israel, comes. Jesus is the true firstborn son. And everywhere God's people have failed, guess what? Jesus, his one and only son, will never fail. As the true Israel, Jesus enters into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted in every way, but does not sin. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry of declaring the gospel to the world, light and to the darkness, he doesn't call 12 tribes, he calls what? 12 disciples. And the same God that delivered his people out of Egypt in the Old Testament is the same God who delivered his son out of Egypt in the New Testament. God is not just fulfilling prophecy. This is the beauty of the story of Christmas. He's not just fulfilling prophecy, he's delivering on a promise. Jesus is the promise, entering into this kingdom of darkness, right? To show light to the nations. And notice what Matthew says, verses 19 through 21. He says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in, in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So they're returning back home. The scripture says in verse 22 and 23, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, 
in a place of his in place of his father he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene so in the kingdom of darkness there's riots everywhere right you get Archelaus Archelaus is one of the sons of Herod and he's he's just as evil as Herod maybe not as talented right but he's just as evil but God is still in control and when you see verse 23 where the scripture says that uh, it was spoken by the prophets so that it might be fulfilled that he Jesus would be called a Nazarene here's the here's the amazing thing about this you, you don't see that prophecy in the Old Testament you go back and you look for those exact words guess what you're not going to find it But here's what you will find, and I love what Matthew says. He doesn't say prophet, he says prophets, meaning that this was a common thread communicated throughout the Old Testament concerning the prophecy. How so? Well, the Hebrew letters that make up the the word Nazareth means branch, sprout, root. And here's what we find in the Old Testament. Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots of And from his roots shall bear fruit. In Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6, the scripture says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which you will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So you see this righteous one, this root this branch all throughout the Old Testament. And here, Nazareth was a small town, obscured in many ways, maybe a population of 500. And you're wondering, just like Nathaniel wondered, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yes, Jesus Christ is the righteous branch. He is the root of Jesse. He's the one that brings eternal life. So yes, we live in a world that is chaotic, full of evil, full of darkness, but never forget There is a greater kingdom, the kingdom of light, and God is always in control no matter what. From the deserts in the east to Jerusalem to Bethlehem to Egypt to Galilee and to Nazareth, God is in control. Even in the pain and suffering that comes from the evil one and the darkness of this world, God is still in control. And one day, King Jesus will return, and his kingdom and his kingly reign will last forever. Revelation 21 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you long for that day? Do you long for that kingdom? Until then, find your comfort in the Savior, King Jesus. Not into the kings of this world or not into the kingdoms of this world, but King Jesus. And remember, this is not your final home, right? In Christ, there is something greater, right? And that leads us to our third and final observation. The commitment to be made. The commitment to be made. You know, the king you choose will ultimately determine the kingdom that you're in, right? That's what the scripture is teaching us. Uh, You think about Herod's reaction when he hears about Jesus being born, king of the Jews. Uh, It's outright rejection, right? That's easy to see. I mean, he is going full force on annihilating this one named Jesus, right? But then you see the religious people, right? Remember, it's Herod went to them to seek where this one would be born. And what did they do? They quote the scripture. And you would think for the religious people, they, they don't move, right? 
They're five miles away. They don't move an inch. And you would think after 400 years of silence between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, there would be a tremendous longing for the people of Israel to, to seek, to honor the coming Messiah. But they don't move at all. What does this mean for us? I think it's important that we must not believe that everyone who's talking about Jesus is actually worshiping Jesus, right? Don't believe that every politician, listen, every politician who quotes a verse of scripture worships Jesus, right? Again, the kingdom of darkness is around and the very thing that Satan wants to do is to distract us from the one, the true one, King Jesus. Not everyone is thankful for the true message of Christmas even religious people, right? That, man, that, that should, it's easy to talk about Herod. But you start meddling in the religious crowd, we got some problems. And that's what the story of Christmas is reminding us. But then we look at the lives of Joseph and the wise men. You see obedience and worship. I mean, think about the wise men for just a minute. The scripture says in Matthew 2, verses 10 through 12, when they, the wise men, saw the star, they rejoiced. I mean, think about it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, just joy on top of joy, right? And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. So there's a humility to this worship. And they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him Jesus. They didn't offer the parents. They offered Jesus, right? At most, two years old, right? They offered Jesus gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. I love what it says. They departed to their own country by another way. It's almost like their life was changed when they met Jesus, right? I mean, that's kind of the picture there. Another way. They are treasuring Christ, giving him gifts that are suitable for a king. Gold. So gold wasn't just extremely valuable. It was extremely important, right? That was kind of the currency that was being used so this important thing, they give the most valuable, important thing to the Lord, Jesus, as a, as, a, as, a, as a picture of you are our greatest influence. You are our greatest, most important thing in our life. This frankincense was a rare perfume that had a wonderful smell. The priests in the temple were the only ones who could make an incense offering. And what are they saying? They're saying that, Jesus, you're the one who is all holy. You're the one that is able to, to truly burn the incense in the temple. You are the, the representation of everything that is beautiful and everything that is perfect and everything that is holy. And then you have myrrh, this anointing su substance that would have been used for embalming a person after they died. And this would be the final smell, right? The death of a loved one. Maybe foreshadowing the coming death of Jesus on the cross, right? All these gifts, all because Jesus, born the king of the Jews, sent by God, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem from the little town of Nazareth. Have you committed your life to the king who was born, king of the Jews of Nazareth? That is the question. And it'll embark hatred, apathy or it will embark great worship you know that's a when you think about Jesus of Nazareth it's a very powerful name given of Jesus when the demons speak of Jesus in Mark 1 they call Jesus Jesus of Nazareth after Jesus's resurrection and the women go to the tomb only to find it empty the, the angel says what don't be afraid you seek Jesus of what Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he is risen, he's not here. When Paul meets 
Jesus on the road to Damascus, the very one who was there to persecute the church, the very body of Christ. And he meets Jesus face to face. And the scripture says a loud voice saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And later on in Paul's life, when Jesus go, or Paul goes before Felix at the trial where they're trying to prove a case against Paul for the riots that are being caused. What do they say in Acts 24 verse 5? For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague that is a nuisance. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of what? The sect of the Nazarenes. It's common that Christians are more identified with that of being a Nazarene, specifically in the Middle East. And so I want you to think about this for just a minute. When your allegiance is committed to King Jesus, guess what? You are opening up your life to spiritual warfare against the king of darkness and the kingdom of darkness. But you have to trust King Jesus prevails. His kingdom prevails. You know, in fact, you go back to 2014, uh, thinking about the, the Nazarene, the Nazarites, uh, beginning in 700, uh, in the 7th century, when uh, the Muslims began to persecute uh, Christians, they would identify them with the Arabic letter uh, Noon. And uh, they would, that's how they were identified. They, that, they were the ones that were despised. They were the ones that needed to be attacked. Those are the ones that are going to be killed. And so you fast forward to 2014 when uh, the terrorist group ISIS goes into Mosul, right? When they go into that land, how do they mark the places of the Christians, the Nazarenes? I have an image for you. Look at this picture. You see that right there in the middle in the red? That's the Arabic letter for noon. And what that meant was when you saw that letter, you take everything you want. You hurt whoever you have, whoever you want. Why? Because that is a place where Christians reside. And that is the truth. We live in a world of darkness. And there is the king of darkness who seeks to persecute and destroy the very church that Christ loved. And so you have to believe that when you commit your life to Christ, no matter how subtle you may think it is, it's going to cost you something. It's going to require something of you. The question is, are you going to commit to him? You know, we live in an area that's full of all kind of comfort, right? I mean, you think about the things we get bent out of shape about. If you were to plant us in areas like the Middle East, I think we would have a totally different perspective. But the question is, are you committed to King Jesus? So we see in Matthew 2, a clash of kings conflict of kingdoms, a commitment to be made. And that's where we're going to go. Have you committed your life to Christ? As you think about the story of Christmas, listen, we want to talk about all the great things, the good things, but you really can't understand the greatness of Christmas until you understand the backdrop of evil and Satan. He's hell-bent on destruction and defeat and death, and yet Jesus Christ has entered the world as the greatest king, the only king, the ultimate king, to usher in a greater kingdom, the kingdom of light, where it brings hope and grace and truth and life. The question is, have you committed to him? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? As a follower of Christ, do you find yourself getting apathetic to the things of the Lord? Are you more concerned about creature comfort than the gospel? That's the beauty of Matthew 2. Again, the primary audience is 
the Jews, but who comes a worshiping? The Gentiles, right? And then you get to the end of Matthew, and that's where you say, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, right? What a beautiful picture that God has a heart for the nations. Is he your king today? As we stand and sing and worship, the altar will be open for you.